Time Chop. See you soon. Hi, good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on Living Writers, we get back in the time machine and travel to January 10th, 2018. When I spoke with Jason de Leon about his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail, out with University of California Press. We'll also talk about the Undocumented Migration Project. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hope you enjoy the program today with Jason de Leon. Or in some sort of sanitarium Or maybe you'll call From a dry-out center From a payphone in a suburb Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FN FM. <laughs> Auspicious beginning there. Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel today. Jason DeLeon is on the program with his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Jason, thanks so much for coming down to the station today to talk and being here. No, thanks for having me. On this foggy day. Yeah. <laughs> and Happy New Year, everybody. Let's see. There's a couple of things that I just want to start out with here before we get to Jason and the book and the many stories uh, I can't wait to talk about with you. Thanks to Tom and Alex at University of California Press for sending the land of open graves. And big, big thanks to Amanda Yuli and Frank Yuli for the last two installments of Living Writers, the last show of 2017 uh, with Chris Alsberg and the first show of 2018 with Jenny Traig. And a quick happy birthday to my brother, Tommy. Okay, so now, Jason, the show is yours. And I can't, I've been looking forward to this because we emailed couple months ago or so and then you had it you had a dinner to, different things yeah, yeah, came yeah. up so we so today's the day yep. thanks for picking the songs for today's program too do you want to tell us about the like why you chose the first one so that first song is by a band called richmond fontaine from portland oregon um and the lead singer willie vlalton is also a, a novelist um who writes really great books um he's got a new book coming out um this this year um and he's sort of a Pacific Northwest writer who I think kind of it's like Raymond Carver meets um, Charles Bukowski meets like Charlie Brown. And so it's kind of they're dark stories. There's a lot of drinking. But the the protagonists are always they're 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 kind of hard luck stories 
um, and people you feel you really like and feel sorry for, and then the, but then the stories never really end well, or they don't really have a resolution. So they're kind of like they reflect m- more like life, um, yeah. as opposed to like a super happy ending. It's kind of like oh, it just sort of ends, um, but it ends in a kind of a realistic way, which makes them more depressing. So I love the music, Richmond Fontaine. I love Willie Walton. Um, when I moved to Seattle, I didn't know anything. I lived in Seattle for three years. I didn't know really much about that region, except that Richmond Fontaine was based in Portland. And I made myself a promise. I said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to make this guy be my BFF. And so I went through, I did all this kind of backdoor stuff. I was teaching a class called Anthropology of Rock and Roll. and I, it was About like, him. Well, kind of. You know, I had assigned his book for the class. It's a class of 500 students. Um, and so I got a little bit of money together and invited him up to come and hang out wow. with me. And so I made him come up and drink with me and be my friend. And then where did you take him? Which bars did you go to? We went to this. What bar did we go? To? Um, we went to a bar called the Blue Moon. Okay, yeah. so in the U district. In, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of get, um, and then it got on forty fifth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do a little quick ad for the Blue Moon. Hello, everyone. Anyone listening and eating peanuts there? Right exactly. Now? <laughs> and then it just got then it got blurry from there. So who knows where we went? Um, but you know, he and I have become very close over the years now. And um, you know, he was someone who was super helpful to me when I was writing the book. And um, how so? You know, he looked at, at sections of the book. Um, Especially the the kind of semi fictionalized stuff in the beginning, um, he's just been really helpful with helping me think about writing as as practice, um, developing sort of good habits, thinking about writing as um, something that can be really enjoyable, which wasn't something that I really thought was possible. Um, because of the kind the type of writing that you had done, academic. Yeah, because well, I think academic <laughs> writing. Yeah, leading questions. Academic writing yes. is a pain. Is painful. I mean, I think it sucks. I hate it. I don't ever want to do it again. If I never write a journal article or a book chapter again, I, I, I'm trying to never write one of those again because I find the format to be really limiting. Um, I don't really like arguing with editors about prose. Um, you know, is this academic sounding enough? I like those are conversations that I don't want to have anymore. And I had them with the with with some folks in the beginning about this book, and then they just kind of let me do whatever I wanted to, and I found that to be super liberating. Well, in the introduction, you actually talk about that, like trying to figure out like how you were going to, it sounded like, kind of walk between the academic register and then using like the real language of and slang and yeah. that shows like maybe some of the grittiness, like the real authenticity of what you were writing about, yeah. which seems necessary. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was funny, the, like, the, the pushback when people would say things to me like, well, we don't know if you can have these untranslated words in Spanish or these passages in these, you know, Spanish slang untranslated. And I'd say, well, you know, if it was untranslated French theory, nobody would have a problem with that, you know? And I think that people do that all the time, the snootiness and the, and the, the um, expectation that we all speak French, right? So we'll leave it untranslated. So I was like, well, if... If you can quote these long passages of Bourdieu, why can't I, you know, some Spanish swear words? Um, And so we, I I had a funny... More educational, in fact. If you look at, like, my Instagram account, I think there's pictures of one of the the copy editors. He, I really kind of drove him insane with some some of these passages, but he was a, he was a real trooper, but he would write me these, you know, send me back these comments like, what does this mean? And he'd be like, all right, Google this. And I don't want to know anymore. Like, I'm, um, <laughs> but is it, is it okay on the page right now? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Everything is yeah. perfect. Yeah. So, so that was, um, you know, but Willie was really helpful with that too. I mean, and when I've been talking to him lately about this next book project and him just saying to me, look, just write the book you want to write. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Um, you know, people worry about contracts now and people talking about it, book advances and that sort of stuff. I mean, I think because this book has done so well and so the expectations of the next one will also. And I've just wanted to not think about those things and just say, I want to write the book that feels the best to me and then figure out what it'll do out in the world, um, but not want to get caught up in the 
kind of hoopla of, of this current moment. Well, kind of what the book needs to be or wants to be on its own, like what the story is that you're, yeah. you're telling. And not worrying about, is it going to sell? Is it not going to sell? Right. Um, you know, I, I worry about sophomore slump. I mean, I think about bands quite a bit, you know, and the kind of Milli Vanilli effect. Um, <laughs> oh, don't we all? Yeah. Or all those bands that win like best artist, like best new artist, and then the next record is like the worst record you've ever heard. And so I worry about that with books. The second book, is it going to be, is it going to be, um, readable is it going to be good is it it's hard to come i mean it's like apples and oranges i think comparing these books but um i want it to be the best thing that i can produce and i think to do that i just have to focus on on the writing itself and not worry about you know all this other kind of stuff and i definitely don't want to deal with with you know is it academic enough um, right well i think that's then you don't need to yeah and because you actually and you have your position too right so it doesn't maybe you can write outside of that without any yeah. worries yeah. and then it'll be what what it needs to be it seems like is this the project with um where you're studying um honduran smugglers yeah. that are co- traversing through mexico yeah. is that yeah so that's a, that's the current book project that i will i've been doing field work since 2015 and i'll start writing this this summer hopefully so will the macarthur um fellowship give you some time like with this as well as funds to for travel and I'm kind of sitting on it right now because I feel like um you know I don't quite know what to do with it yet and I've and I've been able to get money from other places to to pay for some stuff and so um I'm kind of like not sure what what the MacArthur money is going to do for me yet other than I'm going to buy a pretty sweet camera I mean that's kind of my one my, I think my one um my one extravagant purchase will be that, but everything else, I mean, I, you know, I wanted to go towards, um, you know, f- facilitating the research and, and making things, making the project expand in a bunch of different directions. Well, it seems like you've got so many things in the fire, like in a good way, that, <laughs> if I'm making the wrong saying there, yeah. um, but it seems like lots of um, great things. In fact, you know what, everybody out there listening, I'm going to go ahead and very unconventionally now read the bio (laughs) for Jason DeLeon now that we've talked for a while here. Okay. Um, Jason DeLeon is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan and the Director of the Undocumented Migration Project, UMP. He won the 2016 Margaret Mead Award for his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Jason is a National Geographic Emerging Explorer. I've got to say, I love that. You're so lucky. <laughs> but I don't, I don't get a free subscription to the magazine, which what? I think is really unfortunate, what? right? <laughs> that seems like an oversight on someone's part, National Geographic, if you're listening. Okay, put on with the bio. And on the academic board for the Institute for Field Research, a nonprofit organization operating over 42 field schools in 25 countries across the globe. He received his Ph.D. from Penn State University and B.A. from UCLA. His CV can be found. Oh, well, you'll just have to look for it, folks. Jason is also a singer-songwriter who has recorded and released several albums with the Long Beach, California-based hardcore reggae group Youth in Asia in the 1990s and with the central Pennsylvania-based group The Wilcox Hotel. He also records and performs as a solo artist and has toured extensively in the U.S. and Mexico. Jason once hosted a short-lived television show on the Discovery Channel called American Treasures, which allowed him to hang out with Mardi Gras Indians and the drive-by truckers, who we'll hear later in the show. Um. Jason. I'm all over the place. Yeah, Jason <laughs> MacArthur Fellow, 2017. Um, 
and everything, everything good to come. Um, and there's actually so many other pieces that we'll try and talk about as we go through the conversation because you've got yeah you are all over yeah. the place <laughs> in a good way jack of all master of none that's what they say <laughs> but isn't that that a good way to be i guess i'm i get so um i get so bored easily so i'm like constantly making left turns but it seems like you don't leave things behind too though yeah you know i've i've tried to and then they, they creep they creep back um so music archaeology all these kinds of things um but in a good way i mean I, i've kind of i used to think that when i when i did something new that i had to leave everything sort of behind and um i've come to i've gotten a lot smarter over the years about these things i mean i think with even the, the book project i ended up music and the writing that i did as a songwriter really influenced the book quite a bit um, and I never expected it. previous writings that I had done as an academic. That was never the case. And so the book allowed me to do that and to see those important connections. And what were some like, how did you see your songwriting at work, like in the in the prose, in the storytelling? You know, the the I'm really into lyrics. And, um, you know, when I started writing the book, I realized, well, in the in previous work projects where I'm writing an article and I want to, it's, I want it to get peer reviewed and people to, to read it and for it to get um, published. Um, I wasn't thinking so much about the reader, but thinking more about are all these ideas there and are they clear kind of thing. And with this book, it was more like, do people want to hear these words? Do they want to read these words and, and sit with the sentence? Do they want to go on to the next sentence? Am I being kind to the reader? Um, which I think with, with songwriting, I mean, trying to say, a lot with a few words is really my became my approach with the book as well. And so um, shorter sentences. Um, I've read this book out loud probably 40 times. I mean, that was really helpful for me um, as I was as, I as was you editing. were drafting. Yeah. To say to say these words out loud and go, do those words make sense together when I say them out loud? Because when you're looking at it on a page, it's not not always clear that the if the sentences are clear or or um, or painful. But when you say something out loud enough, um, it, it, I think it really clarifies um, the, the writing. Yeah, you can hear how how the prose is working when it's singing, or if it's a bit clunky, or yeah. And people say the book long. sounds it sounds like the way that I talk, um, because that's kind of the way. I mean, that's how I wrote it. Was it was me telling basically a story um, that I've just instead of saying it out loud, I've put it, put it on paper. Uh, so, how did you figure out when you started to think about the book, making this book, the land of open graves? Um, I mean, you've, we've talked a little bit um, already about sort of the struggle while you were in the process of writing it, like what register or how to write like the, the language of it. Um, but when you envisioned the book, what was it starting out as? I didn't have a vision for it at all other than, you know, Michigan and research institutions. Like if you're an assistant professor, most places you have to write a book. And so for me, it was like, okay, I, I never thought I was going to have to write a book until they said, write a book or lose your job. And so it was, okay, I got to write a book. And Some so, incentive. Yeah, and so that was kind of the first thing. And then after I got into it, I realized, okay, this could be really painful if I make it, or it can be really enjoyable. Um, and so I wanted the writing to to feel more like songwriting or storytelling. And and that was, that was hard because I had to unlearn a lot of bad habits from my academic writing. And then I had to start thinking about... Um, other forms of, of other genres of writing that really became helpful. I stopped reading ac academic work in the beginning, and for the course of the sixteen months I wrote this book, I pretty much only read novels. Um, I, I read an occasional ethnography or journal article if I needed to for the data, but I just reread or read novels um, throughout the whole writing process. That was super helpful. And what were some of the ones that really that stand out to you even now? 
Uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, that I actually wanted to talk with you about yeah. that one. But let's take a short break and maybe we'll come back okay. and we'll talk about it. Um, cool. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Jason DeLeon is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Steph Engineering making the sound sound good. We'll be back. Men walking along the railroad tracks Going someplace and there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire in the bridge Shelter line stretching around the corner Welcome to the new world home Sleeping in the car in the southwest No home, no job, no peace, no rest Well, the highway is alive tonight But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Searching for the ghost of time Joe. Prayer book out of his sleeping bag Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last In a cardboard box neath the underpass Got a one-way ticket to the promised land On a pillow of solid rock Breathing in the city Quiet down The highway is alive now Where it's hitting Everybody knows I'm sitting down here In the campfire line Waiting on the ghost of Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Jason DeLeon is here um, in the studio. Um, his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Jason, what about Bruce? Let's talk Bruce first, and then we'll go to Cormac. <laughs> first you name know, basis here. <laughs> yeah, I have a, um, if you come to my office here on campus, I have a uh, like a charcoal sketch drawing that I wanted a uh, my Christmas party of Bruce just sits in my in front of my computer. I stare at him quite a bit. It's a horrible drawing of him, but um, but you want it, too. yeah. He's, I, and I, I covet it. Um, you know, Bruce was a, was a, a songwriter who I remember growing up. I lived in Philadelphia when I was a kid, and I was um, we lived very close to JFK Stadium during the time of um, Live Aid. And so I remember listening to Springsteen in '84 um, from my bedroom window, and my mom had had the box set, um, and we had, you know, she'd had Born in the USA, but I just always thought it was kind of corny Americana. You know, I, I didn't really understand the messages behind Born in the USA until I was in graduate school. Like how it's not like Woo-hoo! it's not patriotic, right? Yeah. Like the whole Reagan thing, where, or, or Bush, whoever it was, when they're playing Born in the USA is like a campaign song. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's quite the opposite. Listen to the words. Yeah. Listen to the stories. But somebody turned me on to a good uh, a good friend of mine in graduate school, a guy named Eric. Crochet, he turned me on to the album Nebraska, 
and and so you know this basically demo tape that Springsteen makes in his bedroom on acoustic guitar that is life changing I think and so I I started listening to that record and realized like well man I mean he's really saying these he's saying some incredible things and the the prose is so beautiful um, and really lyrical and um, and he's able to do a lot with just very few words and so I got I went down this deep Bruce Springsteen rabbit hole um, um, at that point and then now you know um, to my wife's chagrin I pretty much can play Bruce um, she's not I mean she's into like acoustic Bruce solo album Bruce but sometimes I when I'm I think punishing her with um, with with some some Bruce era it's uh, it's not always great but I, lo- I love Springsteen <laughs> she's like enough okay. yeah yeah it's like again like yeah uh, <laughs> Um, Gotta have the Bruce, right? <laughs> yeah, and Bruce is like kind of one of my tests for people, like Bob Marley, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, Jason Isbell. If you don't like those artists, I have a hard time. Like, we're not gonna yeah. get on. Or, or like, you don't necessarily have to like them, but but if you have negative things to say about them, then I'm like, yeah, this is probably not going to work out as a whole friendship <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, Bruce Bruce is definitely one of those. Um, but he's you know you gotta you gotta get into him, and I think it's people oftentimes are not introduced to him in the right way. And I think if you start with an album like Ghost of Tom Joad or or Nebraska or um, maybe Devils and Dust, I think that that's an easier way than starting with like The River. I think for some folks that's hard to to start with the late 70s stuff. Do you teach a Bruce Springsteen course? I should. Um, Off and on I've taught a course called The Anthropology of Rock and Roll, which which I spend a lot of time um, in Bruce Bruce land. Um, So I mean, what's not not to like? (laughs) Everyone will like this. Yes. <laughs> and it's on the test. <laughs> yeah, it is. It always is on the test. Like these students like, oh again with the Bruce Springsteen. Right. God. You know, there's certain bands I just punish punish the students with, but it's good for the soul. It is. In the long run. Well let's okay. So the um reading Blood Meridian, how did you come upon that book? And was it like one that you started reading before you were writing The Land of Open Graves or during or by I just started taking a tour of people who have been writing about the Southwest, mm. and you can't really do that without reading Cormac McCarthy. And um, when I was, I wrote this book in Santa Fe, which is where he lives. And so people, he was always kind of people, you know, they'd see him at the coffee shop, kind of thing. Um, I didn't see him until I was like, is he your friend too? Jason? I wish, I w- you know. So I didn't. <laughs> this I, is like the friends of Jason show. <laughs> for a, over a year, I was looking for him and I never saw him. And then I was in Santa Fe last year, and we saw him at a restaurant, and we walked by, and of course. He's sitting by himself. He's wearing this weird, like, ma- like Naga hide jacket. He's just eating a, a steak and drinking a glass of red wine. It's kind of the perfect image I would have of, of Cormac McCarthy. And it was, you like, know. really rare. Yeah, steak. you know, yeah. like, and, 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 and we walk by, and I'm like, oh, my God, there he is. And, and of course, I didn't want to do the whole, like, fanboy thing because I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to just be cool. And so I went and got my wife, and she's like, let's get the kids, and we'll walk by, and we'll pretend not to look, but then we'll look. And so we, <laughs> so we did that. So we're kind of, we see him again. And, and then I told another, uh, some students who were there, and one of them goes, oh, my God, Carver, Carver. So I was like, okay, I'll show you where he is, but you got to be cool. We can't, like, freak him out. So we walk by, and I point him out. And she kind of stops and walks over, and she's like, I love you. And he just look, turns at her and goes, do you want to take a selfie? And so they end up getting all these pictures with him. And I'm sitting on the side, like, trying to be <laughs> like, cool. Oh, like, you know. And But I told myself after that that I would never not get a selfie with any with people like that. I would just um, so I did it recently with Gary Loris from um, the Jayhawks. I ran into him at a bar, and I was like, "Oh man, like, where's the camera?" Um, But yeah, the Cormac McCarthy thing. Um, But next, you know, he got a McCarthy. He was one of the first MacArthur winners. Oh, Uh, yeah. So I feel like I can have some fake 
the yeah, you have a bond like, yeah, with him. Like, hey man, like, yeah. uh, can I come over to your house and <laughs> right. eat some rare meat? And, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the fellowship. <laughs> yeah, I'm, people tell me that I could do that. I don't. I don't know if it's actually true, um, but I'm gonna give it the old college try. Yes. So stay tuned, yeah. listeners. So I got my my, part two my, my list of people I can stock and just be like, oh, I, they, the people over in Chicago said I should just call you. Um, so we could hang out. I could spend the night. <laughs> Oh, no. we'll, we'll see. The dream yeah. gets bigger yeah. by yeah. the second. <laughs> What's your Wi-Fi password? I'm, I'm moving in. Um, so, what was it about, like the the lines? Like, was it a like the way in Blood Meridian? Because that can be a book for people that can be life changing. Reading it, uh, let alone if you're kind of reckoning with your own desert story to tell that's full of violence, yeah. which which is part of the land of open graves. I mean, that's probably why you titled it what you yeah. did um to to so i think the for me what i like about the book is that it is so dense mm. and when you read it there are like phrases and metaphors that he's using that it's like every single sentence feels super important i mean there's a there's one i always think about one where he describes kind of at the end of the book where um uh they have this gimp who is a, who they're kind of dragging behind by a chain, and he just describes this individual, um, and it's like a Neolithic goat herder. I don't know. He has this weird kind of description, and it's like this super dense description. And I'm just like, man, this is like the the two hundred and forty fifth thousandth sentence in this book, and it's amazing. It's like every single. And so there were just these little things, these little nuggets that that I was like, look, he never loses sight of the importance of every single individual word and how these sentences fit together. So there were things that, like that that always s- struck me. But also the way he writes about violence in that um, it's so shocking in the beginning and then by the end it has become so normalized because it is just at every single turn. And I, and, and I like the – I feel like for a lot of the folks I work with and write about, you know, that violence that they experience is not shocking because it's an everyday thing. And so um, I kind of looked to that book to figure out a way to to write about these things that are graphic without um, – I don't want to lose sight of the pain of these things. But at the same time, I don't want it to be just all kind of fantastical, like to get to a point where you're it's, – it's normalizing the violence for the reader because I think the people who experience it, it's been normalized for them. And so, those, so I think that book does a good job of – because by the end, you're just like – you just expect everything to go bad at every single turn. And so in the land of open graves, is it, um, because it is, it's like this, the stories that the people are telling that you're telling, like the, that you're telling, that they told you, that you, um, that they, they are painful and they are uh, violent. And there's also humor too, because, um, I was struck by how you would say, even in the telling, um, people would be making jokes about things that you couldn't you almost couldn't believe but it was part of it maybe because it's so normalized or it's a a way of living through it yeah i mean you don't think there's going to be jokes in this book i mean because it's so grim but there's a you know there's moments that are funny um and i it's I didn't know whether to include that stuff or not um, in the beginning because it felt like it was distracting from like it was or I was making light of something. And then I you know, came to realize that, no, humor is humor is super crucial to the to these stories and the way that they're told. And that's part of this whole thing. Um, and the project I'm working on now with smugglers, it's 10 times darker than this book. And 
probably 10 times funnier too in that sense. So I'm, I'm currently struggling with how to, to balance out the kind of I'm crying because I'm laughing so hard versus the I'm crying because my heart has just been broken. Um, but, I, but I think the humor um, for me has become increasingly important because uh, um, it was how it was experienced and how it was told to me. And so, and that was important to you. That was part of your mission of writing this book to have it be something for the reader um, that they can't, they, they obviously can't experience, but in, if they have empathy and imagination, you can get close to understanding something of the experience. Yeah. And I think it, it speaks more to the kind of the individual as a person, as opposed to the sad migrant. I mean, obviously these are sad stories about people who are migrating, but, um, People like Memo and Lucho, those, I mean, those guys are funny. I mean, and it comes out, I mean, the stories where he's talking about, you know, uh, drinking or being in the desert and almost dying, but he's telling it and he's kind of laughing about it. I mean, for me, that I want you to like him as much as I do. And part of what I like about him is, I mean, it's not because he's this migrant. I like him because he's a funny person who tells good stories. And so um, that, that just became important for me making these character sketches was to include all those details. And you mentioned earlier that there was, a, in the earlier part of the book, too, there was like a, I guess, a synthesis, like how you were going about presenting the stories. There's some fictionalization of it and some synthesis. Um, can you, yeah, say Yeah, what ended up happening was every ethnography has to have what I call like the painful sort of history background section. And so for me in this book, it was, okay, I need to describe the desert to you. I need to talk about temperature and snakes and all these kinds of things. And rather than making a laundry list of like, okay, um, Mojave Green Rattlesnake or Western Diamondback, I wanted to find a way to, to include those details through people's voices. And so what I did was just I created this, these composite sketches based on a lot of the interviews that I had done with people who, who weren't main characters in the book, but you know, but they had done maybe two or three hour long interviews. And so I had a bunch of interesting stories that I thought I could compile together to give people a, a general sense about what was going on. Um, so it's sort of the stories are true, and it, it, but they've been kind of semi-fictionalized in that I've created composites of individuals or I've, I've combined interesting parts into, into a, a, a more complete narrative. That still feels... Like like an auth- the authentic narrative though, yeah. but a way of guiding the reader through it to get all of these like without the laundry list yeah. as you said, but to get all the information. Do the people? How many of the people who you were who were you interviewed for these two or three hour sessions? Like how many people have had a chance to to see the book or respond to the book? Whether it's like some of the the images or the sections or yeah. I'm in touch with all the main characters who are in the book. Um, they've they've gotten copies of it. They've seen the images. Um, we're waiting for the Spanish translation version. Um, not everybody's literate or fully literate, but um, you know most of those folks have copies. and um, And the pictures are very important for them. You know, being being visible. Um, I think that you know we we have all these worries about invisibility and protecting people's identities. The, a lot of these folks, I mean, they want to be hyper visible because they know that. Um, this is maybe the only time that people are going to care about these stories. And, um, or maybe I'm the first person who's ever said, look, your life is important and I want to document it. Uh, so the, the, the images then for them become really uh, important because also that's a much more accessible thing for them as well because they can look at an image and understand what the book is about much more than reading through you know, what would maybe be dense prose for someone who's not a native English speaker. I mean, because this is, this is a long book. This is yep. not a short book. This, um, so... Um... And so for, I think I'm remembering um, Victor and Miguel, they were like, take the pictures. 
like yep. take the pictures when you were there seeing them when they were starting their journey to go across yeah. the desert because they were like people aren't going to believe you otherwise oh yeah i mean everybody i mean everybody was like why aren't you taking more pictures um which is kind of why i take a lot of pictures now i mean was what came out of this book project was realizing that i wasn't taking enough pictures and i wasn't thinking about the role of the visual as much um as much as i should have been Let's take a short break and then come back and talk more about the role of the visual. Today on the program, Jason DeLeon is here, the land of open graves, living and dying on the migrant trail. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Hard on the run, keeps a hand on you can't trust anyone I was so sure what I needed was more tried to shoot out the sun days when we Somebody knew I was meant for someone. So, girl, leave your boots by the bed. We ain't leaving this room. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers today on the program. Jason DeLeon is here, the land of open graves, living and dying on the migrant trail. Um, So just before the break, um, we were talking about the visual component of the the book, The Land of Open Graves, also and and your upcoming project, um, but also your website. Um, And I feel like there was also when I was looking like researching online, there's an article that has a photo essay attached mm, to it yep. now. Yeah, I mean, so most of the photos in this book were taken by um, uh, my very good friend, Michael Wells, um, who was basically my best friend from high school. And so this was this book is just an excuse for us to hang out in the desert and, you know, find ways to work together. Um, and he's a, he's a photographer, professional photographer, who who I didn't listen to for 20 years about how cool photography was. Um, you know, he's someone I'd go to his house and he would have a giant book on the table, photography book and I'd say how much was this book and oh, it was a $70 photography book and I would say who in their right mind would spend 70 bucks on a photography book that you're going to look at once and now I'm that person who spends too much money on photography books and can just sit there all day looking at these images um, so I really got inspired after working with him on this project and making the book um, and because some of your photos are in here too yeah. they're Mike Wells photos your photos and, and some and, and of some, by, the... some taken by migrants um, largely Memo and Lucho um and then what would happen with the next project was when I went to Mexico in 2015, Mike's wife uh, had just had a baby. And so he couldn't come to the field. And so I was thinking, well, who's going to take these pictures? And I was like, man, no, I got to buy a camera. And, and so I was kind of bummed that I had to do this work. And then I started doing it and just got completely obsessed um, to the point now where, you know, photography is like is on my brain constantly. And so the next book will have a, a lot of images. And then really will be about it'll be about smuggling, but also about photographic practice. Why? Why take pictures, how to do it ethically, and how do the decisions that you make behind the camera, how are they shaped by the work that you're doing? 
So how do race and ethnicity and class and privilege um, shape my technological decisions? Um, so I've become very interested in that. So what, t- what type of film do I use? What type of camera? What type of, um, of, um, of compositional techniques am I using? How do those decisions relate to the anthropology, to the, relate to the context? Um, so that, that's the, the, next, the next big thing. Yeah, who's in the frame and who's just outside um, of it? Yeah. In some sense, oh, I can't wait for the next book. Then, um, I teach I teach some image driven courses here, yeah. so um, I'm thinking already. Thinking, yeah. Oh, for class well, even. Yeah, and you know, and I will. I'm giving a talk on campus in March at the Donia Human Rights Center um, on this photo project. I think they're gonna they'll they'll show some pictures and stuff too. So um, oh, great! Yeah. So upcoming in March. Yep. So yep. look for that. I think March 14th is what they tell me. Okay. Yeah. Are there any other things that people should look out for while Jan- we're on the subject? January 31st? There's a roundtable over in the Ford School um, with uh, with a journalist and me and talking about border stuff. So I think those are the two events that I'll be doing. On no three events. There's an Institute for Humanities event in February on on the archive. So let's talk about the archive because that's the undocumented project. Mm-hmm. Migration project. Migration yep. project. Yes. Yeah. When, could you talk a little bit about this? Because this seems like a massive project that's ongoing. And yeah. You know, one of the things that I think this project has become most known for was the the fact that we started using archaeology to understand clandestine migration. And people laughed in the beginning, thought we were nuts. Um because, like, for example, um, water bottles or um, a dis- like old shoes yep. or discarded clothing or backpacks. We got a lot of them, 6,000 pieces, something like that, uh, here on campus. Um, we've looked at probably 40,000 pieces out in the field. Uh, but we treat that stuff like archeo- like we would any archaeological assemblage. Um, do, you, do you not collect all of it then? Like, we collect or- some of it. I don't have enough space to keep everything. So, I mean, my lab is... Um, bursting at the seams in my garage has become the annex for some stuff. Um, but we collect a lot of stuff, um, I think partly because it's um, it's a salvage mission. These, these things are getting destroyed by the desert. They're being thrown away. And this is, you know, the archaeological record of this migration that won't be, they will not be here in 20 years. And so, and have you talked with someone at the Smithsonian about this? Because I feel like, like Steve Valesca's, in your acknowledgments, you said he was believing that things migrants leave behind are worth preserving. Like that was, was that Yeah, Steve is, a, Steve is a great, great, great guy. Someone who very early on contacted me and said, look, the Smithsonian's very interested in these things. How do we, how do we get some stuff? So he came to Arizona with us. Um came to Michigan, looked at, looked at the collection, and he's taken, they've taken over 100 items. They have a new exhibition that opened this year, last year, called Many Voices, One Nation. And it's on display right now for the next 20-some-odd years in the American History Museum. And we have, I think, four or five pieces that are on display currently in the Smithsonian from this project. Um, but Steve was someone who early on recognized the importance of this stuff and fought very, very hard to get it into that collection. And that's important, isn't it? Yeah, Just talking about visibility or being part of either history or archaeology, or yeah, I mean, I think that I, I don't, I don't always, I don't want to. I, I, work is important if you if the work that you're doing feels important because you're committed to it, then I think that's what makes it important. And so I'm I'm not a big fan of like. I need someone outside to recognize the stuff to validate it. Um, but the Smithsonian validation w- was actually really important for me to, to be like, look, after close to 10 years of arguing with people about is it trash, is it not trash, is it history, is it not history, to have you know, this big institution recognize it for its cultural and historical importance was a real, um, a very proud moment for all of us involved in this project. And so, and, and 
so and what does that allow for you to do? Does that mean it just helps to feel like the undocumented migration project is going to be sustainable in a way that because it's moving beyond like almost like your voice fighting for it. Now it's more voices. Yeah. You know, I think for us, it's it's just being as public as possible and getting this stuff out there in a lot of different ways and and maybe inspiring people to go and do to do it themselves. Um, you know, we can't do everything. I work with a lot of I mean, I collaborate with a lot of students, undergraduate, graduate students, senior researchers. So trying to find folks to get involved in the project to take it in different directions. And part of our goal of being so public is I hope to inspire people that they will go and and, and maybe see what they can do. How can they can how can they use archaeology to contribute to this discussion? Or how can they think about the archive as a as a form of of both scholarly research as well as in, in this current political climate, you know, resistance. And what are there some examples that you that come to mind off, off the top of your head? Well, we've done a lot of students have done lots of honors theses at Michigan and elsewhere. Um, conference presentations, posters. Um, you know, I think we've inspired a lot of other exhibitions and people who, who are interested in this in this sort of work and you know, setting an example of how to do interdisciplinary social science research with the public with the public component and and to not have it be um, you know, I think sometimes people think about like public scholarship as being not theoretically rich or being kind of like, you know, um, it's like underwater basket weaving kind of thing. Where for me Public scholarship can, is is can be rigorous. It, I mean, it always, it's just I want it to be accessible and accessibility. And um, I don't see a, a disconnect between you can be ex accessible and smart. Um, I, I, I don't think that you, that you have to have one or the other. But some people um, would probably, you know, would argue against that. But I, I think it's because we're not. We need to be more committed to being to being public, especially right now. Yes. Yeah. Um. Also, I think sometimes people, um, when their writing is more obscure, they might say, oh, it's more academic. But I think it might mean that some of the thoughts are yet to be cleared for the person. Like there might be a lack of clarity even in the thinking. Oh, I think that some some people write impenetrably because there's not... They haven't figured it out. That's yeah. They're hiding things. See, you're you just said that yeah. much better than I. You're, 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 no, no, but I mean, like, <laughs> I always joke. I'm not smart enough to be impenetrable. I don't know all those big words. Um, you know, I tried, and I'm not very good at it. Um, and I think that uh, you know, theory is supposed to be simple, but we somehow take it and make it more complicated, and that's just never, never jived with me. Uh, so I, I don't know. I so I struggle with academic writing, and actually, I don't struggle with it anymore. I just don't do it anymore so and earlier you mentioned like unlearning things like what are some of the things that you you un, like unlearned about academic writing that actually allowed you to to do the work for the land of open graves and your upcoming project um i i just started thinking more about the reader you know i want people to open up this book and then the next books and i want them to want to stay with that book I want them to go to the next page. I want them to be really engaged. And I never thought about that when I was writing journal articles. I could care less about the reader. I just wanted to get my ideas out there. But I was never thinking, like, am I being kind to these people or am I punishing them? And, I, you know, when you're a graduate student, you have to read a lot of painful writing. And and I thought, well, okay, that's why you're supposed to do it. So I had to unlearn that and think about am I being clear? Am I being lively? Right? Am, I, am I using the right words? Are these things readable? Is it flow? Um, and so that was helpful. I mean, I had to that I had to go back to my songwriting 
I had to go back to you know novels that I loved and, and artists that I that I appreciate and think about well how do they do it um, so that was a, a huge thing and I had a wonderful editor um, Kate Marshall at the University of California Press she is very very good um, just helped me in, at so many different stages with the book and you know we went back and forth with with some drafts where she would say you know this first part it reads really well it's great it flows it sounds like you this next part you're wearing your professor hat and it's boring and it's painful and doesn't fit there's there's a disconnect between these two these two pros you need to figure out how to smooth out those 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 um transitions and so having someone to really call me on that was was super helpful and then were you able to then also see part of like those shifts that you were making like at, or what did it sort of take someone to like point out parts and then you'd be like oh right i see it there was some there were some things i knew were happening other times it wasn't so clear to me but like the whole semi-fictionalized thing i mean i had to come i had to that was me going i don't want to write this section like from a traditional standpoint because it's just going to be it's going to hurt it's going to be too miserable i don't want to do it so i got to figure a way to make this exciting and so um you know playing little games with myself to 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 make the writing more enjoyable and how many drafts did you do because you're talking about going back like revising talking over with an editor um a lot i mean i i that each chapter, you know, I sort of worked on the chapter by chapter, and each chapter probably went through twenty, twenty drafts, if not more. Um, and so I got, and I got better, I think, as I was as I went on. In when terms you say of, chapter by chapter, sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but is it that you hadn't drafted the whole book? You were sort of writing this chapter and then keeping staying in it before moving forward, or yeah, did you write the whole? I tried to do that. Um, but I think most people in my position. Their first book is their dissertation, so they have right. they have something to work with. But this is all from scratch. I sat down and was like, in the beginning, <laughs> okay. um, which was so frightening. Um, it always is. But then at the same time, it was really liberating because I was just living with this. It was kind of a living, breathing document now. Um, and then I just kind of, you know, I had storyboards and I was thinking about how these different pieces fit together. But I tried to to work on it chapter by chapter. I wrote the conclusion last at the very end um, in you know, so it, it felt like a really natural progression for me. Let's take a short break and then we'll be back. Today on the program, Jason DeLeon is here, the land of open graves, living and dying on the migrant trail. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
you're just tuning in, I'm really glad you did because you're catching the last quarter of Living Writers Today with Jason DeLeon, his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying in the Migrant on the Migrant Trail out with University of California Press 2015 and winner of the 2016 Margaret Mead Award. Um, and, you know, the National Geographic emerges and it's emerging <laughs> explorer too, right? You know, the, 2013. When they sent me the like email for emerging. that, it was in my junk box for like two weeks. And no. I, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't see it. And then I finally responded. was like, is this real? Because it was like, it didn't really have my name on it. And they give you money. And I was like, yeah, it seems like... um. Like, you know, you want my bank account, though, right? You're in, right. You're in Nigeria, and uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the only way for me to get this money is, uh, yeah. Yeah. But it was, it seems like, because I feel like I also heard one interview where you said, maybe it was the talk you gave at National Geographic, where you said, I was really, you know, as an undergrad, coming into undergrad, I was really into Indiana Jones. Yeah. And I wanted to be an archaeologist. Yeah, yeah. Or so. And look what happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you're actually making it happen. Now you're like with like Honduran smugglers traversing Mexico. Yeah. That's, I uh, mean, not at this uh, present moment, yeah, yeah. but you, you, you often can be found. Yeah. Doing questionable things. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. And I love that you're laughing, but I think there's also this pathos to like, that's like, a, like that that's hard. That can take a toll no. on a, a person, on a mind as well. Yeah. I mean, this work is not, you know, I never want it to be, woe is me, look at me, poor privileged researcher who gets to hang out with these people. But, um, and so I, you know, in, in this book, I talk a little bit about kind of the personal turmoil that, that observing these human rights violations can, can, can have on a person. The smuggling stuff, it's been really brutal, much more brutal, to the point where I, I'm I need to finish the book now because I can't really do this stuff anymore. It's just gotten so dark. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you, you, you have to really want to be there. Um, and then you have to constantly think about why are you here and should you still be doing these things kind of, um, that's an internal dialogue I have quite a bit. And that seems like that's, um, that's something that's a, a battle for the ethnographer often, right? Like, yeah. like, is this, Am I doing more harm by being here? Kind of thing. That's um, that's a, a a real a real issue, and with the smuggling stuff, I mean, it really it's a rough life that those guys live, and, it, and they have very short life expectancies. And you know, whatever you want to say about smugglers, and they obviously do horrible things, and they're you know abusing people and caught up in all kinds of violent um, scenarios. At the same time, these are people who don't choose that lifestyle, who end up there for a variety of reasons, and um, you know those guys suffer too. And it to be up close and personal with that kind of stuff is way different than kind of seeing it from the perspective of migrants. Because why? Because you just see people who who you know your friends get killed, they kill people, they tell you about it. Um, you you know you hear the stories, you see the intense daily lives that these folks live. Um, so the amount of drug consumption that smugglers do because of, you know, if you're not sure if you're going to see tomorrow, I mean, I'd probably be snorting everything inside as well. Um, so these guys are living, um, living super rough and it's hard to, to be around that, you know, if you're not involved in it. So as like a researcher trying to write about this stuff, uh, it, it really can weigh heavy on you. Um, I mean, I remember doing field work this past winter in Mexico City, and every day I'd spend, I'd spend 12 hours with the smugglers, and then I'd come home and have dinner with my kids. And that's a weird space to go back and forth from. Um, you know, you're in a safe house all day, 
hearing stories, hearing the whole, the worst stories you've ever heard, and then you're going and, and changing diapers. And knowing more of some of the, like, more of the danger and violence yeah. that's out there that we, like, I don't know. Like, sometimes it's, like, sometimes you people choose to turn away from it, even with the stories of um, the undocumented migration across the Sonoran Desert began yeah. because people were blocked from, like, urban uh, areas where they were crossing more readily, right? Like, like pushed yeah. out to these margins for, like, the, I don't know, what the prevention through deterrence, meaning yeah. the desert will, will kill you if you try. Um, and it does. Um, it kills a lot of people every year, every day. And not everybody, most people don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear these stories. We don't want to look at the stuff up close. And um, either because we just want to ignore it or because we don't know what to do with it. And um, I'm in a position, I think, to, to write about it and study these things. I have the privilege to do those things. And so I try to um, take that very seriously as a, as a researcher. And so you have this empathy, which then you're, you're writing about the stories of these smugglers so that maybe people then can think about them differently, maybe not as judgmentally. Yeah. I mean, I want people to think about smugglers as not the problem. They're the result of much bigger problems. We make smugglers. I mean, we, 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 we make these problems. We fund them. Um, and so I want to paint them as, as people who are caught up in this much bigger system. And so, you know, Border Patrol loves to blame the smugglers for everything, for every, every, every bad thing that happens to migrants. And obviously smugglers are involved in those things. But it's not as if um, they fell out of the sky. I mean, we have created them through various policies and through all kinds of other, you know, enforcement-related issues, have, we've constructed the smuggler. And right now what's going on in Mexico with Central Americans, I mean, that's, that's much of that is, is based on U.S. Um, political moves. And with your, when you're there and your involvement, um, are you, like, how, I'm, I'm not, it's so hard for me to understand boundaries, like how you would be able to set boundaries, or if you do. You know, I try to, and those guys know too that 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 I have questions about about smuggling. I have questions about how things work. Um, I'm not super interested in how you kill someone. Um, I'm not super interested in why you kill someone. Um, but I end up hearing a lot of those stories. I end up hanging out with a lot of those guys who are. I mean, because many of the smugglers now have all transnational gang ties. Many of them are in MS13. And so oh. they're smugglers, they are enforcers for MS-13, so they might one week be moving people across Mexico, another week they might be killing people for money. And so I hear the, all those stories, and a lot of the guys I work with are involved in um, in a variety of different activities. And so I try to set boundaries to say, look, I know that you kill people for money, and that's a big part of what you do. I just don't want to – I can't handle that. Um, it's not – it's not something I'm, I'm super interested in, and it also weighs really heavy on me to hear these stories. Um, so that's that's a constant negotiation with these folks about what I want to hear, what what I can legally hear. Um, so we're, but I, I I try to set boundaries super early on about this about sort of stuff, and they, and they recognize too that they don't want to get me in trouble. I don't want to get them in trouble. Um, I don't want to take that kind of emotional burden. I mean, I end up taking it anyway because it, it happens. But um, but we, we we try to figure out how we can all navigate that space together. So, and that kind of openness seems like that to me shows how you're building trust. Cause it's also like, how do you have access? Like, 
yeah. to these stories, to the people with these stories. I mean, I, I always joke, I can hang out with anybody. Um, and I probably have. I mean, I, but I get in there and it's like, look, I'm super interested in what you're doing and in your life. I think your lives are important and I want to understand. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to get you in trouble. And, um, you know, the anthropologists, we're nothing, the ethnographer is nothing if not super annoying because we don't go away. We just keep coming back. <laughs> and so after a while, they're like, okay, I guess you're not leaving, so we might as well make room for you. Um, and that's how it's always been for me. And so with, with the smugglers, moving from working with migrants to working with smugglers was a pretty easy um, transition. And so I have probably too much access now, so I've had to push back. <laughs> and you don't feel, like, endangered? No, not, most of the time, no, because the guys I work with, you know, they recognize it's bad for business if I get hurt. But then also, you know, you, tr- you try to develop these relationships so that, um, you know, people, you trust them and then they trust you. But trusting smugglers, I mean, is, I mean, that's, that's risky business. Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, can, what can people do? Because we've been talking about, I feel like there's been a threat of just by like hearing stories, telling these stories, that's a form of resistance in the present climate. I think for me, what we can do now is to just be educated and to understand, okay, when we cancel the protective status for, for Salvadoran people, as we've done this week, what does that mean? Why, you know, why did they have protected status, right? What was going on in El Salvador to make people flee? What will happen to people if they go back? I mean, if people look at it as not the cancellation of some program, but as a death sentence that, was, that will now, you Which know. will be handed down. Yeah. I think if, if they understand that, um, they'll get motivated to be more active. But I think it, we really have to start with, with education first. So reading, getting into, the, into the, the background on all these different issues. You know, DACA, what is that? Okay, how many people are affected by it? Um, what would it mean if it's canceled? I think just starting with those things can be really helpful. Because right now we get so, we get so blinded by this, this stupid wall and, all, and the kind of – I mean, there's a lot of political smokescreens happening as we speak um, – uh, and we have to figure out ways to, to see beyond that so that we can focus on, um, I think, these much more important issues. And the stories of the people involved is a way to, to understand it, to yeah. get beyond some of these smoke screens or some of these the angles. I hope so. Because, I, I mean, I, I think that we can't keep talking about migrants and immigrants um, in, in the realm of statistics. Those, I think, if I tell you, okay, 200,000 people are going to lose their protective status, does that really impact you or do you have to know people's names and see their faces and hear these individual stories for then those numbers to mean something? And I think we, we have to start at the ground, you know, um, at the local level and then move up. Thanks for talking to me today, Jason. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Come back anytime. All right. Um, today on the program, you've been listening to a conversation with Jason DeLeon, his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time.
he scores! Adam Fantilli equalizes it! McCourty, McCourty, McCourty! It was McCourty! Welcome to episode 5 of Wolverine Hockey Wednesdays. If you're here with us live, you're listening to 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. If not, thank you for tuning in wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, William Gregory, today joined once again by 21-year-old sophomore Luke Beely and fan of St. Louis-style pizza, Kendall Spencer. Let's go, man. How we doing? Let's go Red Wings. That's how I'm doing. Absolutely. Even after the heartbreaker last night, we'll we'll get into it. Right. Uh, the wings are the wings are hot. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. Five one and one, fourth in the NHL in points. But let's talk about the weekend we saw of Michigan hockey. Uh, one zero oh, and one, really one and one, because they lost in the shootout in the second game against Ohio State. But a big seven one victory on Friday the twentieth, and a two two tie with that aforementioned shutout or shootout loss uh, on Saturday. Josh Ernice has been kind of a revelation as a freshman. He had two goals in that game against OSU on Friday. Um, I feel like he has been productive in his short time with the Wolverines. Three goals already. Um, but it's a lot of the production is still coming back. It's still coming from uh, McGordy, Casey, Hughes, Brindley, those freshmen from last year. Um, Nazar kind of counts there that were so productive outside of what Adam Fantilli was doing. So any instant thoughts about this weekend against OSU? Yeah, I mean, that first game, um, we saw saw the flashes that of, of, 